This week on The Take, we're marking one year since a pair of devastating earthquakes hit Turkey and Syria with a new digital interactive. Listen and watch stories of survival, recovery, and coping with the grief at aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Again, that's aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Al Jazeera Podcasts. Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI, and I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. Tens of thousands dead on both sides and millions of Ukrainians forced from their country. As a third year of war begins, we examine what Russia has achieved since its full-scale invasion. Who's benefiting most? And is it a war that can be won? I'm Laura Kyle, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests now. And in Moscow, Pavel Felgenhauer is a defense analyst and former columnist for the Russian newspaper Novaya Gazeta. From England's second largest city, Stefan Wolf is a professor of international security at the University of Birmingham. And she's usually in the Ukrainian port of Odessa, but joining us today from London is Hannah Shalest, security studies program director at the non-governmental analytical center, Ukrainian Prism. A very warm welcome to all of you. Uh, Hannah, today marks another grim milestone for the people of Ukraine. How is this second anniversary of the full-scale invasion being recognized there in Ukraine? And what's the mood amongst people there? You know, the moods are very complicated because on the one hand, you have the determination of the people to continue uh, defending their land and to fighting for their freedom and sovereignty. As we finally realized, and that is the second feeling, the understanding that this war is not a short war and that unfortunately the demands from uh, uh, the Kremlin are becoming just uh, more and more surrealistic. And the third feeling is the uh, certain tiredness, let's be honest, because you live two years under the constant threat, under the constant stress, under the constant uh, shelling. But this tiredness is not tiredness when you are laying and saying, or oh, I cannot do anything. That is partially also psychological tiredness because you cannot understand how such a war crimes can happen in the middle of Europe in the 21st century. And you're just trying to find the second breeze, how to continue fighting. That's when you just don't have other choice. And this understanding of the existential war is something what the whole country is sharing doesn't matter which uh, politician or which ideology you are supporting. And how is today being marked in Ukraine, Hannah? There are definitely, first of all, the uh, sad commemorations, that is, commemoration of all those uh, civilians and military uh, killed uh, during these two years, and these numbers are quite high. At the same time, we have quite a um, high-level delegation arriving to Kyiv, um, including the uh, head of the European Commission. Uh, we have the leadership of Italy, of Canada, of Belgium, of several other countries. So that is the demonstration of the support. But as you can see, that 
that is, uh, first of all, the commemoration of those who died, and there is discussions how to unite our efforts, how to unite the efforts of those countries who understand what is mean the rules-based order and the human rights and the value of the life, how to unite their efforts to continue the fight. Uh, Pavel, the Russian defense minister is visiting forces in Ukraine. What's morale like there, especially on the front lines in these winter months where there's very little movement, just a lot of fighting? Well, there's little independent reporting from the Russian front line. Uh, officially, it said that everything is fine. And there's, I would say, official euphoria after the capture of Avdeevka, that Russian forces are advancing and that the war is progressing, or special operation is progressing satisfactory. Uh, there are, of course, uh, problems. And uh, uh, the troops did not get... There, there are many, the, the, the fighters on the front line have been there for a long time. Those who have survived. And uh, they don't, uh, are not sent home. They, um, at least in big numbers, uh, there's no good rotation, and that's, of course, a problem for mm. morale. But for the time being, the Russian forces are fighting uh, successfully, uh, at least uh, on the, the face of it. Uh, Russian soldiers are tenacious, oh, as Ukrainians are too, and uh, the fight is continuing. So if there are problems with morale, they are not critical right now at all. Uh, the Russians have just recently taken, as you mentioned, Avdivka uh, back in May, also Bakhmut. How much of a hollow victory is this, though, for Russia? Because both of these cities have been absolutely decimated by the fighting. And it took a long, long time to overcome them. Well, this is part of the war of attrition that's happening there for the last more or more almost or more than a year already, uh, when the uh, overall front line doesn't change much, and there are pitched battles uh, where one side hopes that the other is going to begin to break up that the morale of those that are on the receiving end and those who are retreating. Right now, it's the Ukrainians, that the morale of the Ukrainian troops will snap and that their resistance will begin to disintegrate. That's not happening. So these are battles not so much for the particular city, though Avdiivka is important because it's basically the suburbs of the big city Donetsk, the capital of the Donbass. And pushing the Ukrainian forces away from Don Donetsk is important because it, they were just simply in the suburbs. Uh, but uh, this is mostly right now treated as a, a propaganda boost for the upcoming mm. presidential election next month, uh, that Russia is on the winning side. Uh, President Putin is now much appearing in public and actually projecting uh, at, uh, 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 the feeling of victory and that everything is going in the right direction. So that make, makes this uh, battle for Avdiivka important psychologically and politically mm. foremost. Uh, Stefan Pavel mentioned the war of attrition. If we just bring up again on our screens the map uh, of Ukraine and, and Russia's advances or the front line there in the east, we can see that the front line there has moved 
very, very little. The gains are small. Would you say at this point that the war is at a stalemate? I think it has been at a stalemate for quite some time. I mean, uh, there was the initial Russian gain uh, in the early months uh, of the war that was followed by the Ukrainian pushback in the summer and uh, autumn of uh, 2022. Uh, and then basically over the past uh, 15 months uh, or so, we have seen very, very little movement. And yes, um, as Pavel just said, I mean, the fall of Avdivka is um, a propaganda uh, victory, if you want, uh, for uh, the Kremlin. But it has shifted uh, the front lines maybe by 300, 400 or 500 meters. Uh, so in that sense, uh, the, the real problem uh, right now, I think, for both sides is that it's enormous cost uh, involved in terms of material, in terms of uh, casualties uh, that both sides uh, sustain, basically for just consolidating uh, the front lines where they are at the moment. Uh, Hannah, this word of this, this description of stalemate is being used quite a lot. We're seeing it appearing quite a lot when it comes to now describing the situation in Ukraine. Is this a word that you agree with when it comes to describing the state of the war? Um, probably not. And one of the reasons is that when you speak about the war of attrition or about the soulmate, you're looking only at uh, some parts of the land operations. However, from the day one, uh, this war was the asymmetrical and definitely understandable that Russians had uh, more forces on the ground. So over there, that was possible to have the active defense uh, from both sides. However, if you look to the situation, even after the new year, Russia lost uh, additional Navy ships, and that's comparing that Ukraine almost doesn't have the Navy now after the initial days of the war. Uh, also, within the last week, Russia lost nine important jets, including the A-50. And A-50, they had only three or four for the whole Russian Federation. They're already minus two of them. We also see that Russia is not controlling the Black Sea anymore. Uh, they are uh, losing and not uh, able to move in Krynki, that is the uh, Kherson region, the southern front. And even Avdiivka, that's quite an interesting, you know, Pavel described it as the success, or at least how the Russian media presented. But just imagine, Russians tried to catch, uh, capture the city for 10 years, since 2014. The last battle happened for approximately four or five months of the intensive uh, uh, fighting. Uh, the town was just of 1,000 people, and uh, uh, Russia received in killed uh, approximately 30,000 for capturing this uh, small town of 1,000 and they did it only by completely destroying uh, the city. So Avdiivka as a town doesn't exist anymore. It's not even the ruins, it's mostly ashes over there. Can you name something like this as the successful operation of the strong armed forces? Definitely no. Here I would absolutely agree that was more for the media consumption before the presidential elections in Russia. That's why when you ask, is it the stalemate? Definitely not, because the fighting is happening. However, will we see a change of the tactics and strategy on the ground to see the real changes of the situation. I expect, yes, that by spring we will have a certain uh, reshuffling of the forces, maybe change of the strategy because of the new uh, commander of the mm. Ukrainian armed forces. And the big, uh, the me what media expecting is the big changes of the big battles. That's something that we will see uh, probably by the mid of spring. Uh, but Hannah, the reality is we've got analysts saying Russia outweighs Ukraine when it comes to artillery ammunition by five to one. And 
The Ukraine is running low on ammunition. Supplies from the U.S. are looking shaky. So how does the, how does the coming year look when you're looking at it in terms of how you can make advances on the battlefield? Uh, here we need to divide it into two uh, questions. First is about the Russian capabilities, because uh, yes, they can use currently five times more, but you also can see how uh, much they can produce, and they are using daily more than what they are losing. So the question, or that they are producing. So the question is, will we, they be sustainable uh, in this? And we already had last year the periods when the shelling per day from the Ukrainian and Russian side was absolutely the same. Then when we had this poll of delivery of the ammunition to Ukraine since November, definitely Russia again managed to uh, counter uh, and to have the upper hand. But that's why Ukraine used more of the drones, that's why we use the sea drones. So we are trying to use the different types of the uh, warfare tactics, not just shelling against the shelling. Uh, the international support is extremely important for Ukraine. Uh, and uh, here it is not only the United States. Let's look how the European Union countries really increase their uh, support in ammunition and in pledges for the more ammunition since autumn, when they realized that Ukraine can become just a hostage of the domestic policies in the United States. But here is also the question of partnership that is important. Russia received weapons uh, from North Korea and from Iran, two countries under the sanctions, two countries in the blacklist of everything, but they delivered, for example, North Korea one million of the shells to the Russian Federation. If the democratic world is not able to support Ukraine in the same way, it's not just about Russia-Ukraine. There's also demonstration their weaknesses, for example, for the Asia-Pacific uh, partners uh, who are waiting and looking how they will act in case the new aggression will happen there, for example. So that is definitely the time now when a lot of politicians need to make decisions uh, how they would like to see themselves and their support to Ukraine. So we would not have this uh, pose as what we have mm. this uh, winter in some of the front lines. Uh, Stefan, the EU has made significant effort to keep up weapons and aid deliveries to the Ukraine, but to what extent can it plug the gap that's currently being left by the US? I think that's more a question of time, I would say, than it is a question of uh, capability. Uh, there has been significant uh, reinvestment in uh, the defence industrial base in uh, Europe. So German companies like Rheinmetall, for example, uh, have seen massive new government uh, contracts. But it will take some time uh, for the Europeans to actually accelerate uh, production. Uh, so there was a pledge uh, by um, EU countries to deliver a million shells uh, to Ukraine by the end of March. And that, I think, by for, for all intents and purposes, that will not be met. But this doesn't mean that those shells will not eventually uh, materialize, but it will take time. The, the real challenge now is for Ukraine to basically be able to survive until this increased military support will flow into the country again, whether that's from the US or the EU or both. Uh, one think tank, the Eurasia Group, the, the Germany director of that, said that there is a sense of urgency without a sense of action. What do you make of that, Stefan? Well, I think we, we still have the same rhetoric uh, uh, that we had from uh, European and, uh, to some extent, American leaders uh, that we have had for the last two years, that uh, there will be as much support as there is needed for as long as it is needed uh, for Ukraine. 
But if that doesn't go beyond uh, uh, empty uh, words, then we end up in a situation where Ukraine, not because uh, it doesn't have the, uh, the manpower, uh, cannot defend uh, a city like Ofniivka, but simply because it lacks the uh, um, ammunition, uh, uh, the equipment uh, to uh, repel Russian uh, attacks. Uh, and I think that's in, in the long term potentially going to be a real problem. And the question then actually is not only that we are no longer talking about uh, Ukraine finding it difficult uh, to win the war, uh, but really the question will be to what extent the West can actually enable Ukraine not to lose the war. Mm. Uh, Pavel, if we look at the flow of weapons and, and ammunition uh, for the Russian side, is it sustainable given the huge number of sanctions that have been placed on the Russian uh, government and the Russian economy, also sanctions on North Korean entities that are deemed to be involved in arms deals. There are, of course, sanctions on Iran. How long can Russia sustain the war? Uh, well, on the present level of hostilities, Russia can sustain the war. Um, uh, there is not only production has been boosted, though not to the extent that was during the Cold War capabilities when the Soviet Union could really mobilize its industry to manifold increased production of armaments and munitions, uh, which even in peacetime was very high. That the system has been lost to a large extent, but still there's enough. There still are uh, reserves left from the Cold War of some different munitions being used. So, yes, Russia can sustain. There are problems with producing new high-tech capabilities, uh, which the West can produce and can send to Ukraine if it does. Uh, doesn't do that in many cases. Uh, Russia uh, defense industry, uh, after the Cold War, for the 30 years that passed, since the end of the Cold War, has been using Western materials, special materials, special steels and plastics and uh, electronic components in producing weapons, especially high-tech. And that's right now a bit of a problem, though there are different operations to smuggle in this stuff. There are reserves, but again, there are problems, especially in the high-tech end of production. But basically, yes, Russia can continue mm. on the present pace. And that brings right now uh, optimism to the Kremlin. They're talking about possible uh, forward moves. Uh, the, President Putin said that Odessa is a Russian city, and that was followed up by his uh, former prime minister and one-time president, Dmitry Medvedev. Then there's the Transnistria Republic pro-Russian uh, right now sandwiched between Ukraine and Moldova, uh, where there's a small Russian garrison, actually. So there are maybe ideas of trying to make a push in the South. Uh, will that materialize or not? Uh, that we'll have to see when the summer fighting season comes. Mm. Um, as you mentioned before, Hannah, Zelensky replaced his top commander earlier this month. I mean, the old uh, man was considered a national hero for many, given that he'd led this two-year battle against Russia's outright invasion. With the new guy in place, is Ukraine expecting to see 
2024 be the year it goes on the offensive? Uh, let's see. We are waiting now for the uh, clear strategy, if you would have it definitely public, uh, from General Sirsky. Uh, but you need to understand that this man been commanding uh, uh, of the infantry of the land forces, so he's been daily during these two years also at the front line. He's behind the operations to liberate the Kiev and Kharkiv regions. So that's not that you will have a significant change uh, of the uh, tactics that we are having. It's still the same approach of uh, uh, cutting Russian supplies uh, and uh, having both active defense and the asymmetrical warfare against Russia. Because we understand that if we cannot outnumber in terms of ammunition or personnel, we need to make it uh, for the Russian Federation more difficult to fight. Not only with the external sanctions that uh, limit, but as we see, there are too many spheres where we need these sanctions to really limit Russian capabilities, but also by targeting the uh, production places, the storage facilities. For example, this night uh, it was uh, uh, the strike with drones against uh, the metallurgical plant uh, uh, in uh, uh, Lipetsk, and that is approximately 20% of Russian production of the steel. Steel is important for the uh, uh, mm. production of the different type of the ammunition. So all of these strikes that you see, they're very much the oil depot and others. That's also part of the Ukrainian tactic, how to uh, asymmetrical uh, counter and limit Russian uh, capabilities on the ground to have supply for the forces uh, okay. in Ukraine. Uh, Stefan, what options are still available to help Ukraine? And what are we likely to see this year from the world? I think there are basically two different scenarios that I can see. One is that the West finally uh, puts its money where its mouth is and uh, really doubles down on its support uh, for Ukraine. And that... Um, as uh, Hannah has just indicated, we also uh, need to include much more sophisticated long-range weapons uh, to enable Ukraine to really strike deep into Russia and be able to uh, disrupt uh, production capabilities, uh, disrupt uh, uh, supply lines, and really do that in a, in a highly targeted uh, uh, fashion. In the end, I think the, um, the the question is, it's not going to be necessarily that Ukraine will be able to defeat uh, uh, Russia on the battlefield as such, but it can certainly make um, the continuation of the war just too costly uh, uh, for Russia, so that eventually we will get uh, uh, to a, a settlement that will bring a just and stable peace uh, for Ukraine. But, and that's the second scenario, and that's the one that, that I'm more worried about uh, at the moment, is that we will simply not get this kind of Western uh, support uh, in place. We will potentially have uh, President Trump uh, returning uh, to the White House, and then the, all the uncertainty and unpredictability that that uh, will bring with it. Um, and that will then potentially mean that uh, uh, the West... Uh, or Western support to the extent that we have certainly seen it in 2022 and uh, 2023 okay. will simply not continue. Uh, Pavel, just the last uh, question to you in the last minute that we have. Is Putin at all interested in a settlement over Ukraine? Oh, yes, of course. I mean, it's understood that uh, actually uh, taking over all of Ukraine is not really possible. Both sides right now hope to break the stalemate and go mobile, maybe next summer. Will they not? Uh, it's, uh, it's uh, to see, it's not impossible to predict. 
but some kind of ceasefire based on the so-called uh, Korean uh, uh, scenario, a ceasefire more or less on the present line of control, seems to me uh, quite an option. But okay. right now, no one's really ready for that. All right. Well, we will leave it there for the moment. Many thanks to all our guests today for a very interesting discussion. Pavel Felgenhauer, Stefan Wolf, and Hannah Chaleste. This episode was produced by Christina da Costa, Laura Kahn, Ben Clark, and Jim Gilchrist. Studio sound was by Eli Elhani. The programme was edited by Andre Ususan, Zaina Bada, and Joda Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening and tune in on Sunday for our next edition. Coming up in the take, could WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange finally be extradited from the UK to the US? That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.